Hey friends, welcome back to Headspace. Uh, we're finally at a place where we're starting our series of interviews, which I've been wanting to do for a while now. And um, there's no better person to start with than Steve Garber, a very good friend of mine. He is probably the best possible first guest of Headspace because he has spent a lifetime studying the very subject matter of what we pursue here, which is how our headspace today can determine our life space tomorrow. He has remarkable insights into life and how to integrate life into work, family, community, purpose, faith, all of those things. Um, I'm going to read his bio, and then we're going to enjoy just a rich, rich conversation that I'm not going to even tell you what we talked about, but you're going to love it. Um, the Steve Garber is a senior fellow for Vocation and the Common Good for the M.J. Marduk Charitable Trust, uh, the author of several books, including Visions of Vocation, Common Grace for the Common Good. His most recent is The Seamless Life, which is the book that I took off the shelf, fell in love with, reached out to him, and he very graciously responded. We've been friends ever since. He's a consultant in to colleges and corporations, including the Mars Foundation, which is remarkable. He does remarkable work with the Mars Corporation. Uh, facilitating both individual and institutional vocations, a husband, a father, a grandfather. He has long lived in Virginia, near Washington, D.C., living a life among family, friends, and flowers. Steve Garber is a very special man. You will love our conversation. Um, before we do, please hit those subscribe, thumbs up, bell buttons. Help us uh, get this message to as many people as possible. Enjoy my conversation with my friend, Steve Garber. Steve, welcome to Headspace. I am so excited that you are our first interview guest for the Headspace YouTube channel and, and podcast. And the reason I find it particularly wonderful is because um, you and I have been friends for a while, and I felt like okay, when I started reading your books and then I reached out to you, my feeling was, oh, this is a man after my own heart. This is a man who sort of had deciphered some of the things that I puzzle about and talk about and, and wrestle with. And uh, just for the, for the sake of our audience, I'm going to show again. I've, we've done this an interview before, but this is another one. And this is, these are the books that I've read of you, Visions of Vacation in the Seamless Life. And they're both heavily, heavily bookmarked. So I can just show it on camera right there. And it's just wonderful to read and reread um, your experiences, your insights. And uh, so welcome. Thank you for, thank you for being the best, the, the, the first guest on Headspace Interviews. It's a gift to be with you again, Christian, and to know you as my friend and talk about things that you care about and that I care about. So thank you. Yeah. So I have a, actually a series of questions, and we can let the spirit lead wherever we, we it leads. But it's a series of just anchor thoughts and questions that I had for you, because I, I know for sure you have very particular, very specific insights into them. Uh, here's the first one. Vocation and occupation. I am a very driven guy. I don't know where it comes from, right? Mm -hmm. Nature and nurture. I went, to achieve, I went to achieve. 
those are mysteriously twined together in your life and they are all of, all of our lives. Um, and uh, it 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 gives us sort of this energy, this focus, this hyper drive to to get places, and um, it's both a blessing and a malaise. Uh -huh. And your insights into the difference between vocation and occupation were particularly healing to me mm. and very, very helpful as I was able to not over-identify myself with my work. And yet at the same time, not consider it unimportant or superficial or, you know, just functional but see something over my occupa my my occupation, which was my vocation, which is a, almost like a, I interpret it, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, as at a an assignment that was given to me, that I can manifest in more than one way, using right. different different occupations. But this is my vocation. Can you help uh, us? Can you unpack this for our our audience in? And um, we can just discuss this a bit. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful question, Christian. Um, in many ways, it would not be overstating things to say that I spent years of my life sitting at little tables in the Starbucks of the world and beyond uh, with a little brown napkin, talking to people of all ages, whether they're 22-year-olds or 48-year-olds or 63-year-olds, who are wrestling with this question of, what am I supposed to do with my life? Um, and uh, you can imagine there are a thousand different conversations because there are a thousand different people. But inevitably, I have found myself drawn to making two little circles on the brown napkin. Um, one is the vocation circle, one is the occupation circle. And I've overlapped them, but they're not the same circle. They can't be because they're different ideas, different words for us. Uh, but vocation, as you've said well, is it's the deeper story of you and of me. It's who we are that sets us off from our mom or our dad, our siblings, our best friends, that makes us unique in all of history and all of the world. And that's, that's just true of all of us, actually, whether we think, think about it or not. But then it's also true that you know, over the course of life, especially in the modernizing, postmodernizing world, not so true as it was would have been 300 years ago or 1,000 years ago, that occupationally we move over time from one set of circumstances where relationships, responsibilities are marked by these dynamics to, to another one perhaps along the way. Um, and uh, I have found that actually to use the word occupation in relation to, to the word occupy is helpful to us because it it's allows us to see that, you know, when I'm 16 and I'm doing this with my life, when I'm 26 doing this with my life and 36 and 46, the occupational contours might change over time, but the vocational clarity, deepening, identity, reality, uh, is only meant to deepen over time um, so that I might, you know, be doing this for a, a while of my life. I think about what I know about you, Kristen. You clearly were a, you know, a, a serious student at Moscow State University at a certain point when you were a late adolescent, early adult, you know, surprise of all surprise, you began to sing songs for all of Russia at a certain point and, you know, and then, you know, here you yep. moved to the United States and, you know, and you, you do some more reading and study and thinking and 
find yourself moving to Austin, Texas after a while, and you wear two hats occupationally. You know, you're a businessman, an entrepreneur, but you're also an entrepreneur who's a pastor too. You know, so there's something, you know, yeah, entrepreneurial yeah. people about who you are, Christian Ray Flores. Uh, but you have occupationally lived in different worlds over the course of your life. To change this, the conversation from you to somebody else who most of Texas would know a little bit about, but, you know, many of you in Texas buy from either HEB stores or central markets. Uh, well, it's not, you know, a small small history to note that H-E-B was an unfortunately named man, Howard E. Butt. And uh, his father, Howard E. Butt Sr., you know, learned how to sell a lot of bread and, you know, milk and bananas in Texas. And by the time the 1950s came, they had begun to make a lot of money as a family and decided to begin to think charitably about how do we steward our resources for the state of Texas, for our neighbor. Bought a little piece of land, you know, west of San Antonio, uh, called it the free camp for kids who couldn't afford to go to camp was the idea. And uh, and Howard Jr., Howard E. Butt Jr., you know, was befuddled, to put it kind of nicely, perplexed deeply, put it, put it more maybe on, honestly, over his own vocation uh, and the occupation that was to be his in this life. His father had always assumed he would take up the business as a, the, fam the family, you know, you know, this is our business. This is who you are. This is your name. This will be your business, your life, Howard Jr. Uh, but he began to wrestle with a sense of calling to be an evangelist in his 20s. And, uh, you know, to put it kind of starkly, who's calling me? My father in heaven, my father on earth. Wow. Wow. Was how we thought about it. Um, and in some ways, because of the dualism written into his own theological ecclesiastical back background, where in fact, you know, church, gospel, as it was seen, evangelism would always trump business, uh, always be more important mm -hmm. than business. You know, there was in some ways not a question for him, except that the he was sacred, deep, the sacred and the secular, right? That's that's the deep written into his own experience. Yes. And, uh -huh. so, so the, over the course, it's a longer story, but over the course of those 20, 10 years between 20 and 30, he and his mom and dad were having discussions about the rest of life and this new property in the hill country of Texas. They decided to give part of it to Howard Jr. to create the Laity Lodge, which is where you and I first came across to each other. Yes. Um, but for years, it's been a place to think through these questions of how do you imagine a more whole life, a more holy life where sacred and secular don't exist as different categories, my work, my calling, my vocation before the Lord needs to be baptized in a driving through the river itself to get to this place and begin to think in terms of all of life being holy before the Lord. Uh, and so I would say that, you know, your question is born of reality and people all over the face of the earth think about this question because it's really the question for most of us all day long. Thank you for thanks. Thanks for letting me know and and reminding me of the story. I love that story. It's a wonderful story, and and of course the HEB family and the HEB legacy in Texas um, as a business, and which is probably an illustration even of integrating the sacred and, and the secular. They are they are widely beloved as a brand. The brand is beloved in the culture of Texas, and I think that says a lot about. Um, that they were, I think, indeed successful in many ways. Uh, but even, me, even just one more thing about that. Even two years ago, when you had the great whiteout and freeze all over the state of Texas, yes. mm. the winter, uh, there was a top of the full New York Times of all places article about HEB uh, during this freeze out, and uh, 
the article was essentially focused upon, you know, how the cold crisis had come to Texas and how it was disabling businesses and lives and livelihoods all over the state. And but then there was, you know, focused on HEB as a business. And there was an attorney there in Austin, actually quoted in the, in the New York Times article, who described HEB as the moral center of Texas. That is fantastic. The moral center of Texas. Yeah. Wow, that's that's just wonderful. So on on a on a practical level, let's say I think what you mentioned was actually very important. There are different types of careers and and journeys, right? I mean, 30, 40 years ago, 40 years ago, most people aspired to this career journey of you go to college, you start working at John Deere, right? Uh-huh. And then you spend your 30 years in John Deere, then you retire with a pension, and that's it. That's the journey. Right. Since then, I think the, uh, two new ways of journey professionally ha- have emerged. The one is more is linear, but it's sort of upward, right? So you stay in the same industry, you stay in the same uh, space, and then you can jump from company to company. You stay in the same industry, following uh, promotions, um, a raise in salary, status, whatever, right? Influence. That's linear. And then the other one described, I don't remember where I got this, but it was, it's aptly described as spiral, where people can jump um, even industries. Um, they will leave one space, and I think I'm, I'm it's a, probably a poster child of that because I can go from getting a master's in economics to go do show business, to do mm-hmm. video marketing and production, and then entrepreneurship, all of those things, and nonprofit work, and being a pastor—it's just like I've always actually felt quite insecure about this. In and, yeah. uh, and and you and I have had some really sort of vulnerable conversations where I've sort of poured my heart to to you about that. Um, but those are those are becoming more and more typical. The spiral career where you would actually switch even and even at a loss for money or position or stature. Uh, to learn a new skill, something that inspires you, something that you want to pursue. Uh, I think that be- that's becoming more and more common. Right. The downside of that, I think, is is as you switch around, like I did, and many do these days, um, you, you can end up having this strange identity crisis. Who am I? What am I supposed to be doing? And I think your construct of, okay, this is your, voca- this is your occupation, and that can change in a spiral way, uh-huh. but you can still maintain your vocation. It's right. incredibly important for people to understand. So the question is, how do you do that? I mean, take somebody right. like myself. I call myself professionally ADD, but I think it's actually becoming more and more common uh, and more and more mainstream to to do life this way, professional life this way. How do you how do you skip around and how do you spiral? And yet you spiral around still at almost like a the, a vocational back, backbone, right, of meaning and purpose yeah. in a practical way. How do you maintain that identity? Mm-hmm. It's, again, a very good question, Christian. Uh, we could talk about this for, for hours, of course. But um, let me say two things right here. Uh, one would be that when Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, Our Father who art in heaven, give us this day. Uh, forgive us, you know, um, 
And so the, a life of faith and hope and love is first of all, in some ways, a corporate life. It's a communal life. So I'm speaking to the choir in some ways who grew up, the son of Marxist missionaries who were mm. Marx in some ways, you know, arguing for a, a gospel that couldn't actually happen in this frail world. Yes. Um, there was something, I mean, communism was born of communal. Communal, and, absolutely, yeah. So, Steve, I have a, I have a question regarding a, a wonderful story that I actually learned from you about someone very famous, someone who had a lot of impact, William Wilberforce. He's the leader of of an effort to to abolish slavery out of Great Britain, um, and he, I mean, he he changed the world, right? As a matter of fact, I'd love to hear a little bit more of the story of of just the the magnitude of transformation. Uh, that happened starting there and rippled across the world through his, throughout history. Um, but one thing that he did that was very interesting, because this is a person who obviously had vision, is that he chose, he said that he would recommend choosing a house, uh, choosing a neighbor before choosing a house. And he established a group of friends he lived with called, called the Clapham neighborhood. Right. So tell me more about that and why... Why was that important for him as a world changer, a historic figure, that he would care enough about it, that he would be so specific about choosing to live and, and build a life with, with a group of friends? Tell me about that dynamic, if you, if you have insights into that. Again, it would be a good longer conversation, Christian, but this is how I, I see it. Um, None of us exist on our own. You know, it's a fiction that, you know, that I am an island, you know, that I get on, I do do well, I exist by, I, you know, at my best, my truest, I am an island after all. I'm a rock, I am an island, the poets of our own day have put it. Um, it never has been true because it can never be true. And it wasn't true for Wilberforce and his friends either, who had a remarkable, surprising insight that it would be a better way to live life to choose a neighbor before you choose a house. And, uh, you know, they were a particular social economic place in the world. Not everybody has the same choices that they did at the time, but, um, but I would say that was their credo. It's become the credo of my wife and I as well over time. We've always chosen that way since we first were married. Um, but for them, it was the sense that, you know, if this was England as the, you know, the, the lead nation on the face of the earth at the late end of the 18th century. Um, whether we like it or not, the sun never shone, never set in the British Empire is the way we have put it, looking back on that time. The economic engine of the British Empire, tragically, was the slave trade. So uh, it wasn't any uh, something that rule force alone, eloquent, powerful speakers he was in the in the parliament could address on his own. He was act, literally laughed out of the parliament for the first ten years of trying to address this question politically. For ten no, years, no, nobody would take him seriously at all. He was said, you know, you're, you know, uh, you're never going to be taken seriously, Wilberforce. Uh, why would we change the economic engine of our? Great, great, great empire. Be realistic, right? Uh, Realpolitik at its hard edge, of, of course. Um, mm 
So, you know, they begin to rethink the strategy over time. And it's, again, that's a longer story. We could talk more about it if you'd like to. But one phase of the, of the strat reconsidered strategy was to say, well, I can't do this. We will not do this you know, individually. It will have to be a corporate commitment to this, a common sense of vocation together to take this on. So it'll need to be political. Yes. It would also need to be in e economics, um, in the marketplace, in business people. Uh, in the banks, you know, it'll be need to be in education, need to be in popular culture, uh, need to be in the church. And so these diverse arenas of, you know, uh, a human life of what it means to be pe people who have a life together, together made choices to live near near each other close enough. They didn't share toothbrushes, you know, like living in the same dwelling, but they lived as neighbors to each other and would literally go off to do different work day by day across in London, but would come back to the same neighborhood and they would literally have meals together week by week, you know, and pray together week by week for these this common sense of purpose, mission, vocation, which was theirs. Uh, and it kept them at it and it kept them up going for the next 30 years actually to keep and keep and keep on keeping on, you know, until finally there was the political will at a certain strange moment in history to actually vote against the slave trade and, and slavery. Um, I wonder if, if there's an aspect to that on top of the amazing vis vision of integrating, right? Yeah. This should be, it's not a one-person thing. It's an effort. And, and I think the impact on, on eventually on parliament, the policies of an empire was... The world. Yeah. Of the world. Yeah. Was... Um, was just astounding. Can I? Can I? Am, would Would it be appropriate for me to say unprecedented? I don't know any other story like that. So, you know, my friends and I keep telling this story. We keep calling our efforts. You know, wedge with this and clap on that, and you know, keep mm -hmm. talking about the story because, in some ways, without a story like that to re reflect upon, it's hard to believe. In fact, that it could happen. You know, I mean, uh, slavery Slavery has been an institution for all of world's history since all, they were men. All of world history, really. It still is. Terribly, it still is. Was yeah. this effort a first abolishing of slavery on, on, a, on a national level, or was it not the first one? No, I think there's no other time in history where it's happened like that. So, uh, And is it true, is this accurate, that not only was it abolished on paper, but it was also enforced yeah. at a no, great it, expense of, an, of, a, of, of the nation. One of the great ironies is that, you know, during its slave trading, you know, political economy that ran for decades and decades, really, uh, while they sold slaves to the world, you could not have a slave in England on English soil. So it was a, <laughs> a demographic, geographic, political you know, sociological irony and, and hypocrisy. Yes. Into it, of course. Uh, but, you know, one of the ironies of history would be that because this change took place in about 1820 in, in the Commonwealth, British Commonwealth, um, if the U.S. had not had a revolution in the 18, 1770s, um, the U.S. would have been a political, still a, a politically part of the Commonwealth. And we would never have had, you know, this is in some ways kind of a stark word to say, but there would not have been a civil war in America. Um, now, is this, this is remarkable. And yeah. another dimension of this story, and maybe we're sort of 
diverting a bit, but I think it's just really fascinating, is that I think I've heard from a couple of places, um, Thomas Sowell was probably the original place where I've read this, uh, the economist Thomas Sowell, who was wonderful, that Great Britain actually patrolled the oceans. It, the Navy patrolled the, 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 the oceans for years. I mean, that's quite an investment just to enforce this, not only for the British Empire, but also beyond. Is this is this accurate? Am, am I missing something here? Do you know? Thank you. That is, that is true. Because again, just going back to this was the economic engine of the British Empire. Why was that? Well, because a lot of money could be made. Right. And you lived your life long enough in the world, Christian, in the East and the West, to realize that people do a lot, a lot of things, you know, for the sake of making more money or even illicit money or illegitimate money. Uh, and most of the time, we don't count the cost in terms of the public good or the common good because, you know, uh, I mean, why were, why why did Stalin and his cronies have their own grocery stores in Moscow in the 1940s? You know, if you were part of the Stalin's inner circle, you didn't wait in line to go to, the, to go buy bread or buy bad bread in the grocery store. You had your own grocery store to go to. And why was that? Well, because, you know, there was a certain willingness to, you know, a certain economy that was independent of the Russian economy that existed for those who had access to more power. Uh, and the longing, the ambition, the lust for more power makes us do all kinds of things, actually. So this is, so what you're saying is there's a group of people who said, this is not good for us, this is not good for our country, this is not good for the world. And it took them decades. Deca literal decades, yeah. Uh, to, to change this. But beyond that, it did, not only did it change, and obviously there's sort of, I'm sure, one step forward, two steps back processes there. But also there was, there was considerable um, investments made to enforce it, not only for the country, but for the world beyond. Is that accurate, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's completely unprecedented. Now, can, can I ask you this question? So these are obviously driven and determined people. These are super achievers, right? <laughs> I mean, that's an understatement, I would say. Is there a dimension to being in community, to choosing to live in the same neighborhood that is really for their own sanity, their own peace of mind, their their perseverance? I, I, must, I think so, right? I mean, it has to be. I mean, again, these are hard to say, well, what is absolute, what is not absolute, but... I would say that my own experience of watching life in the city of Washington and beyond in my own ways uh, is that we don't persevere at things that cost us without there being some more communal corporate uh, undergirding to, to our lives. Because uh, it just gets to be too hard, frankly. Um, mm -hmm. I remember many years ago talking to a woman who led Harvard University's pr protection project here in the city of Washington. It was a, for, before we even talked about human trafficking. It wasn't even an expression anybody even used then. It was just before the language even began to be part of our vernacular in, in the 21st century. But she had been commissioned by Harvard to create the protection project, which was looking at the reality of slavery in the modern world, the late 20th, 20th century, early 21st century. And... Uh, um, we were, she was not somebody of, of, of faith, uh, uh, but somebody who was a serious person. And we were talking one afternoon, and um, and I was just pressing her into, with some questions. And she said to me quite candidly at a certain point, um, "You know, I, 
just watching the human rights debates in Washington, those who get, come to the hearings, who give testimony, she said, it fascinates me to, to think through why is it that those who, who came, seem to, to keep coming, you know, to keep coming to the debates, keep coming to, you know, the, um, the hearings, keep pressing in and don't, don't st stop and don't give up. They're people of, of faith. She said, and I don't know enough about Christianity to know why that is, but she said, you know, you seem like you have to believe something about right and wrong in the universe, about hmm. just injustice in the world, uh, with some kind of philosophical, theological backdrop to that, to, to be able to actually keep at it, because it just gets to be too hard. And we just decide after a while to go home because I can't keep at it on my own. Is it because, is it because, there has to be more from the inside out. We have this intuitive, primal, almost, or you know, I would say, divine yes. spark of this has to mean something more than just an economic dimension. Do, do you think that that's part of it? I think that's profoundly true. And if you remember at all the story I told at the end of the Visions of Vocation book about the lawyer on his way across America and my pressing him at a certain point, you know, he was very deeply, openly articulate about his evolution of materialism, you know, proud of that, actually. But I finally asked him, you know, do you ever walk into the courtroom um, as something more than a mercenary? Hmm. Ever walk into the courtroom actually thinking that what you're arguing for today is right or wrong, you know, or is it just all, say? You know, always just a mercenary for you? You know, the highest dollar pays my high, high, highly gifted abilities as an attorney to get you, get you what you want. Or is it ever, ever, ever something you think, this is wrong. It should not be like this. Right. And uh, I pointed him actually to that wonderful first essay in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, Right and Wrong as a Clue to the Meaning of the Universe, um, and said to him, you know, it'd be worth you reading this. You know, just to think about it, because there's this brilliant Oxbridge professor who hmm. was thinking through, you know, why do we choose to live the way that we do? Why do we think about the world the way that we do? And and him, his own argument was, well, all of us, whether we, you know, for him as an evolution materialist, this guy in the plane with me, who denied that kind of a world, yeah. because it's all this time plus chance plus matter. I said, well, but I just wonder as a human being, as a human being, do you ever choose to be more than a mercenary? What uh, did he say? Well, it's his own conversation, but you know. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a that's a hard that's a hard question, I think, for someone like that, right? I mean, in some ways, there was something parallel about that in my conversation with the Protection Project person here in D.C., who was just saying intuitively, watching the human rights debates in the city as to who keeps pressing, who keeps keeps at it. You know, most of those who don't seem to have any deeper faith about God and the world, they eventually just leave town. They go someplace else because it just gets to be too hard for them. Um, and uh, I and would I, say that's my experience, yes. And I would say even that most people that we love, respect, like what we love and respect about ourselves even when we do the work that we do, whatever work we do, it's probably that the best of us has to do with purpose, has to do with attaching um, a deep sense of service, a selfless place, mm -hmm. a bigger thing, a bigger thing than ourselves 
to the to the thing that we do. Um, I remember in in I think it was in Visions of Vocation that you talk about uh, Vaclav um, Havik, right? Am I pronouncing the, the... Václav Havel? Václav Havel, and he's mm-hmm. he's he was the president. He was a playwright and he was the president of Czechoslovakia, uh, a remarkable human being, and he said something about the secret of man being connected to the secret of responsibility. And that seems to be sort of from that same source of, if you really want to achieve something dramatic, important, transformative, something that you can be proud of when, you know, eventually you, it has to have come with meaning. It has to come with, I owe this for the good of people around me. And it doesn't have to be grandiose, but it has to be connected with love and responsibility, right? How do you interpret that? Do you think do you think those mm-hmm. things are connected? Again, think about your marriage, Christian. Uh, I think about my marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, we could be cosmological here and, you know, and global, which is I am in my dispositions that way most of the time. But I'm also married to a good woman who I realize that most of the deep, big, hard to answer questions in life are also true of my marriage. Um, and, uh, I would say that, you know, that without seeing her in that way, my relationship to her in the way you've just described, um, uh, without there being a responsibility born of love that runs its way through her life and mine in relation to each other as husband and wife, we don't really have much of a marriage. Uh, um, if, if I have no, can articulate no deeper meaning to being husband and wife than simply, you know, we eat together. We have sex together, you know, we go, you know, bowling together, you know, la, 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 um, you know, but there's no sense of, you know, of, of a, a common commitment, a common sense of purpose in the life together, a, a meaning actually that transcends, you know, my maleness, her femaleness, and actually begins to give some deeper sense of uh, why the camaraderie of husband and wife, the kinship between a man and a woman begins to take on dimension a dimensionality that sustains a long love um, I don't think it's we do that very well frankly um, as I watch marriages in the world do you think that's because we are also dualistic and fragmented is, is it part of this right uh, as as people who strive to be to excel, to succeed, to have an impact, the family dimension is left as perhaps unimportant secondary. Mm-hmm. Is, yeah. is that part of it? You think? Yeah, I'm sure. I know that's part of it. I, you know, you, I, you and I've talked before about my thinking that we are disposed to dualism as human beings. Um, for you know, there's no. There's no good that comes from that kind of a dualism, um, whether it's nature and grace, or sacred and secular, or physical and spiritual. You know, I just work, don't think, and, work and family, right? Yeah, I just don't think that that kind of language helps us at all. It doesn't bring about the more wholeness, which is a, a deeper holiness, which is, I think, what we really long for as as human beings. Made the image of God as we are, living in God's world as we do. Um, so I think that that is how it happens. And I think that over time, if that kind of dualism runs its way through a marriage, I think people actually just get tired of, you know, of the, of the aftershocks, the after effects of that kind of dualism, which, you know, doesn't, you know, I mean, 
I don't know how this is appropriate to say on your podcast, Christian, but I mean, what a beautiful, beautiful word it is from the Lord himself. You know, take delight in the breasts of the wife of your youth. One of my favorite scriptures. <laughs> you know, there's a story. I, I, I was reading, I was speaking at a, at a marriage retreat, and uh, a Christian marriage retreat. and um, Christian, Christian marriage retreat. There you Christian go. marriage retreat. And I was reading yeah. the scripture, and I had, you know, a room full of people, I don't know, two, three hundred people. And... Uh, and I was reading the scripture, and then on 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 that scripture, I sort of paused, and it became evident that I was thinking about probably my wife's breasts, and uh -huh. a little bit too long, and I lost the room. They were laughing so hard. They were last, laughing so hard, and uh, it was hilarious. I couldn't get them back to pay attention. It was hilarious. Uh -huh. My wife still reminds me of the scripture all the time. <laughs> <laughs> They're good words for a wife to remind her husband of, aren't they? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So, As you can see, I mean, if we are born of a certain dualism that can't put together the wonder and the delight of God's gift of marriage, God's gift gift of a wife, God's gift of sexuality and marriage, if we somehow Diminish, diminish that, dismiss that, you know, denigrate that, can't hold together the holiness and wonder, to kind of name a name here, of the beauty and wonder of breasts as a gift from God in the world. That's um, a good one. That's um, a good one, yeah. Hard to find your way into the longer meaning of a marriage. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you, you're absolutely right. And, and in my experience, I think I see this all the time. I, see, I saw this, one of the original crises of my life had to do with this dualism. Yeah. Achievement was everything, fame was everything, success was everything. And I would just undermine my romantic relationships over and over and over again. Like I would just drive people away. And it just crushed me eventually. Eventually I couldn't even keep my attention on my career and my achievements well. It made me a it made me achieve less until I fixed and integrate it in my life and start paying attention to romance and family in in the flat size that I had there. And yeah. you know, and it's just transformative. My I'm I'm so grateful for the ability to integrate those things and actually become those things become the center of your life so you can actually go forth and and do yeah. remarkable things because at home you have this companionship, this this wise woman who can guide me, console me, love me, um, tell me everything's going to be okay. Tell me actually that nothing matters. The things that I can fail at don't matter ultimately, and they're not going to diminish her love for me, right. which which equips me and gives me so much power and strength to actually do, go and do the things that I want to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't just overstate that enough, and yet that's the one thing, the first thing that that people that want to change the world, they drop it. Yeah. And they're on their third wife, fifth wife, sixth wife, you know, it's almost coincides with the startup they're building at the moment, right? Yeah. Third startup, third wife, something like that. You know, as Walker Percy, the great American novelist puts it so, so truthfully, he says, you can get all A's and still flunk life. That's a good, yeah. that's an absolutely that's a wonderful way, actually, to wrap up our our interview. Um, Steve, thank you so much for coming on, and I mean, I feel like I can I can do this, you know, once every couple of weeks, and we'll won't run out of things to 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 talk about. 
I feel feel the same thing, Tristan. So thank you for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thanks for coming on. I'm sure I'm sure we'll we'll have you back whenever you are in between travels, in between doing the wonderful things that work that you're doing all over the world. Uh, and it's um, it's just a, an honor to have you as a friend, as a mentor, as someone who speaks into my to my heart directly, um, both in your books and um, and just on the phone and when we when we see each other. So thank you again. Thank you for being my friend too, Christian. Thank you.